Now, last week, I introduced you to Andrew's army. And what is Andrew's army? Well, an army is a large group of people, a large number of people that are enlisted to, for a mission, for a specific mission. And usually they are enlisted or recruited in some form, and then they are trained after they learn to carry out their objectives. They are resourced. They're given the materials, the resources that they need to do their job, and then they are sent on their mission. And that's an army. And I use that term because I think it's a good biblical term Often in the New Testament, there are comparisons between the church, churches, and this idea of an army. We are the church militant, or we're supposed to be. I think we've turned it into the church milk toast, but we are to be the church militant. There is to be a militant, aggressive side to the church of Jesus Christ, not a passive group of peoples. Adrian Rogers described a church one time like this. He said a church is a mild-mannered group of people listening to a mild-mannered man about how to be more mild-mannered. Well, that's sadly the truth in America today. The church doesn't have much wallop. It doesn't have much kick, does it? And uh, we don't want to be that kind of church. We want to be that army for the Lord Jesus. Andrew, we use his name, Andrew's army. Andrew was the apostle who every time we see him in the scripture, John chapter 1, John chapter 6, John chapter 12, Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. His goal in life is to get people to know the Savior. And so my message today is the message of Andrew's army. Now, last week I introduced the concept, told you all about Andrew, I'm telling you, I want to enlist you in Andrew's army. What I really want to do is enlist a new group of people, not the same people who've been serving the Lord who are with me, thankfully, here for many, many years, but I want people who are not accustomed to witnessing, people who have never won a soul to Christ. I want to challenge you with this. Isn't it going to be sad to go and meet the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ? And he says, well, who did you bring with you? Who did you lead to, my, to me while you were on the earth? Oh, nobody, Lord. I taught a Sunday school class for 30 years, but I never led anybody personally to you. I sung in the choir, Lord. Lord, I was an usher at the Baptist temple. I shook the hands of tens of thousands of people coming through those doors. But no, and we hang our head. I didn't bring anybody with me. Did you understand that the greatest price ever paid in all of history was the blood of my son that was given for the souls of man? Well, I heard the preacher say that, but I just never, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm a little bit tentative. I'm, I don't want to embarrass people. I don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. I don't want you to be in that position. I want you to enlist in Andrew's army. And I'm going to teach you how to do it because it's so e much easier than you think it is to lead someone to the Lord Jesus. Now, what is the message of Andrew's army? Okay, stand with me, please, as we open God's Word today. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, 
I declare unto you the gospel. Now, you might want to underline that phrase. That's an important phrase. I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. We're saved by the gospel. What a clear statement about what is involved in salvation. Look at that underscored in your Bible. By which, by which, what is he referring to? The gospel. By which you're saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. Paul said, I got this from God. How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas of the twelve, and after that he was seen of above 500 brethren at one time, of whom the greater part remain unto the present day, but some have already fallen asleep or have died. And thank you, and you may be seated. What is the message that the members of Andrew's army, believers who believe God wants them to take people to heaven with them, what is the message that we have to deliver? Well, our message is very simple. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You probably already know, if you have been saved for any period of time, that the gospel comes from a Greek word, eongelion, big long term, that you're not interested in, but it means good news. An evangel or an evangelist is one who spreads the good news, who takes the good news out to people. I'm encouraging each member of this church, in fact, to be an evangelist. And so we, an evangelist who, we tell the good news. And the good news is given to us here in these few verses of Scripture more clearly than anywhere in the Bible. Now, sometimes the word gospel is used to describe the message in general terms. We hear about a a gospel choir, meaning people who sing the message of the gospel and Probably more generally, they sing Christian music. Or sometimes we hear people refer to it as a synonym for all the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so they'll say, I'm a gospel preacher, meaning the central point of my message is is the life of Jesus Christ. If you turn to the first four books of the New Testament, the first four books are called the Gospels. The Gospel according to Matthew the gospel according to Mark, Luke, and John. Of course, you could read it like this, the good news according to Matthew, the good news according to Mark, according to Luke, and according to John. It always just means good news. Now, think with me for a moment. If the good news is about man and his environment and the world around us and culture and society, then we are up the creek because that's not very good news. So the subject of the good news is Jesus Christ. The subject of the good news is that great God who we sung about who is always faithful to us. And you come here to this passage, this is the most concise, concentrated, and distilled 
passage in the Bible that enumerates to us what is the gospel. What is this good news? And Paul lays it out for us here. Notice also in verse number one, there's another phrase you might want to circle in your Bible. He says, I delivered unto you that first of all. Do you see that phrase there in verse one? First of all, meaning first in importance, above everything else. This is the priority of every Christian's life, and that priority is the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice four verbs here in these first five verses. I want you to notice the verb or the passage in verse three where it says, he says, I, now I'm going to declare to you the gospel. And first of all, he says, how that Christ died for our sins. And so the first verb is died. Christ died for our sins. You know that. But what I want you to remember today is look at the last two words of that. He died for our sins. And so in that short little pregnant phrase, he tells us the problem. What is the problem of humanity? The problem is sin. What is the problem of your loved one, your friend, your relative, your work associate, your neighbor? The problem is sin. All the world has done everything they can. They've jumped through every hoop to try to somehow define man's problem as different than just sin. But when you boil it down, the problem is in our heart. Somebody said, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. How true that is today. So it, that phrase tells me Christ died for our sins. That's the problem. Sin is a reality. It's not a theological concept. It is absolutely real. It is everywhere epidemic throughout mankind. Now, I want you to notice something else. That little phrase tells me Christ died for our sins. He was not a sinner. He didn't die for his sin. He died for my sin, and he died for your sin. So we have the concept of substitution, that someone takes the place of another person here, and that the price is not cheap, that the price is the most, the most expensive thing ever in all of the universe, that the blood of Jesus Christ, God in the form of human flesh, the blood of God was given for the sins of mankind. Isn't that amazing? What an amazing thing. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed for our sins. Christ died not for himself, but he died for you. If you ever internalize that, I'll tell you the implications of that will change your life forever. Now, you know what I'm afraid of? And I, I, I'm just very candid with you. I'm afraid I'm talking to a group of people who've heard me say that 10,000 times, and that doesn't do any more for you than watching wallpaper dry. It is absolutely just okay, ho-hum, I heard it again today. But if you got a hold of the implications of the fact that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, died on the cross for us, it would forever and eternally change your life and the way you think and the way you live your life. Now, it also does something else here. Notice in verse number three that he died for our sins according to the 
Scripture. That means this was not a random act. This was not a chance happening. One day, a mob of people didn't come up and grab Jesus Christ because he had made them angry, and they crucify him. 1,000 years, or pardon me, 700 years before Jesus came to the earth, 700 years before he came, the prophet Isaiah wrote in chapter 53 and verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. See the substitution again? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or punishment of our sins was placed upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. You, you get it, folks? Do you understand the implications of that and how that is the most profound statement that a human being can, can possibly consider? Second verb, he was buried, verse number four. This is the gospel. The gospel's four facts, four simple facts in four verbs. Christ died for our sins. His substitutionary death, our problem, sin, a fulfillment of prophecy, it was foretold 700 years before it happened. Number two, then he was buried. The burial doesn't have quite the impact on us, but it's very important. You know why? Three days in a tomb, pretty good evidence you're dead, wouldn't you think? And the Lord let him lay there for three days because he wanted to demonstrate to the cynics and skeptics and atheists for all time that Jesus Christ truly died. He didn't swoon. He didn't go into unconsciousness from loss of blood and all these theories that people have had through the years. No, Jesus Christ was dead. Daddy said graveyard dead. Graveyard dead is cold and stiff and dead. No function at all. Third verb, and he rose again, verse 4. He arose again. And again, the Bible uses according to the Scripture, because this too was prophesied. Write this verse down. I don't have time for you to go looking it up. Psalm 16 and 10. There's one of those prophecies. This is a thousand years before he died. A thousand years. The prophet wrote according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, someday there's going to be somebody who comes and who dies. And in Psalm 16 and 10, he said, Lord, you will not leave his soul in hell, and you will not suffer your Holy One to seek corruption. Somebody's going to die, but they will not have their soul left in, the, in hell. There represents the, the place of departed spirits, not a place of punishment necessarily. You're not going to leave his soul there. You're not going to abandon him, his soul, after death. And you're not even going to let his body see corruption. You're going to raise him back up. Job said 1,400 years before him. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that someday he will stand upon the earth, and that after the skin worms destroy the body, I'll see him again. The fact of immortality. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried to demonstrate and to give incontrovertible proof that he was, in fact, dead. And then he arose again. 
according to the prophecies, not a chance happening, not a random event that somehow just occurred. And then there's a fourth verb, and I want you to see it in verse number five. He was seen. Why does it say that? He was seen. Well, because that's evidence. That's evidence. Now, I read verse 6 also, which says he was seen. Well, verse 5 says he was seen of Cephas. That was Peter. And then he was seen of all 12 of the apostles. And then he was seen of 500 plus people. 500 plus people. This building is divided into two little sections over here and three big slices in the pie. And there's about 500 people in each slice here when you fill it up. So as many people as sit from this aisle to this aisle, from this aisle to this aisle, from this aisle to this aisle, in any one of those three slices, fill it up and it's about 500 people. That many people encountered Jesus Christ after he arose from the grave. It wasn't done in a corner where nobody could know about it. It wasn't a hidden fact where he just revealed himself to 12 apostles. I had a fellow one time say, you're, you're basing this whole thing that Jesus Christ is alive on the writings of three or four people, and he saw his apostles. And I said, no, sir. And I turned him to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 5, and I said, look here. There's enough evidence that would win any lawyer, the poorest lawyer, could win a case with 500 witnesses, eyewitnesses to the evidence, could he not? And so here's the evidence. Christ died for our sins. He was buried to prove he was dead. He rose again from the dead, a fact of history, evidenced by the eyewitness testimony of over 500 people. That's the gospel, brother. That's the gospel. Is there anybody here can't remember that? Christ died for our sins. He was buried for three days, and he rose again. Do I need to repeat that again? I don't think so. Interesting fact. Listen, your Bible has 66 books in it. It has 1,189 chapters. It has 31,173 verses. Somebody even counted the words, 773,000 692 words. But the gospel, 10 words. Now lean forward, children. I want to see if you can get it. Christ died for our sins and arose from the dead. The gospel. That's the message. That's the message of Andrew's army. That's the message we're supposed to be taking to the whole world. And Paul wrote in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel that Christ died for our sins and arose from the dead. For it, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek or the Gentile world. I'm not ashamed of it. 
Those facts are the gospel. The gospel is not a feeling because feelings change. The gospel is four facts. He died. He was buried. He arose. He was seen. So what are we asking believers to do? What am I asking you to do if you're going to be a part of Andrew's army with me? What do I want you to do? I want you to go and tell people to believe the gospel, to trust in, rely upon, and have faith in Jesus Christ, not just in him general. When somebody says, oh, I believe in Jesus, I don't know what you mean by that. Because just a general belief that there was a good man named Jesus who walked the shores of Galilee, performed some miracles, taught some good truth, and so on, that's not the gospel. That's not salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is to rely upon, to trust in, to depend upon the fact that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Ten words. Everybody can get that. That's putting the cookies on the bottom shelf, isn't it? That's where anybody can get hold of the great truth of that. And the implications of that, though, have challenged the greatest minds for now over 2,000 years. Now, when the Bible says believe, it means something very, very specific. So it doesn't just believe in believing in Jesus Christ. Yeah, I believe in those stories in the New Testament of how he fed the multitudes and all that. It means to believe something very specifically, namely the gospel. But let me tell you what else is involved in that word believe. See, there's one book in the New Testament that was specifically written to cause people to believe. When I'm talking to an unsaved person, and after I've talked with them and shared the gospel, I sometimes say to them, or they'll say words, uh, uh, words like this in effect to me. They will say to me something like, well, you know, I just don't know if I understand that. I don't know if I'm ready to do that, Pastor, and so on. You know what I tell them? I want you to read one book of the Bible. I want you to read it real slowly. I hope you'll read it over and over two or three different times because the purpose of that book specifically is that people would read it and believe savingly in Jesus Christ. What book of the Bible am I talking about? I'm talking about the Gospel of John. John. John has 21 chapters. Read three chapters a day for seven days. You've read it through. So you can read it repeatedly. And in the end of the book of John, in chapter 20, John the author says, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, John says, these things I have written unto you, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may have life through His name. I've written this book so that you can have eternal life, so that you can have salvation, John said. So 98 times, 98 times in John's gospel, he says, believe, 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 believe. What does he mean to believe? There are three elements that that word means as you read your Bible, and I'll prove it to you in just a moment from one verse of Scripture. But first of all, let me tell you what those are. And you might want to write these down. When I'm talking to people trying to get them to receive Christ, 
I always say to them, there are three things that make up saving faith. Saving faith is not some general belief that Jesus died for you, and that's all you know about it. No, saving faith means this. Number one, saving faith requires knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's why when we talk to people who have never heard the gospel before, often it takes them a while to absorb because they don't have knowledge. You, you were blessed growing up in a church and knowing the stories of the Bible and, and, and hearing the gospel, and you're unaware of how much that really has helped you in your life, probably. But you have to know some facts. There has to be a head knowledge first, and that head knowledge must involve, well, who is Jesus Christ? People have to understand that Jesus Christ is God who came in human flesh. John 1, 14, the Word was made flesh. The Word, it refers to deity, God. Almighty God was made flesh. He was made a man. He was made a human being. He, was, he took on a body. God came from heaven and took a human body through the miracle of the virgin birth. You got to know that. But you also have to know he wasn't just a normal man. This man was from God. He was God, John 1 says. So he was 100% God. He was 100% man. Fully God, fully man, the old catechism said, and it's so true. And what did this man do? You have to know who he was. You have to know something about what he did. Well, I'm explaining to you what he did. He died Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's what he did primarily. Now, he did other things, but that's, that is what it, that's what it takes to be saved. I, you can believe in his miracles that he fed people and, and, and opened the eyes of blind people and, and even raised dead people, and that's not salvation. Salvation is the gospel. Salvation is... Ten words. And so don't go all the way around the whole world. Don't muddy it up when you talk to people. Don't muddy it up with a bunch of other stuff. It is the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. So people have to know who Jesus was, and they have to know what he did. They have to know something else. They have to make a connection between his death, and their need. They have to see that they really are lost and on the way to hell. Yeah, I said it. And we've backed off of that. We want to apologize for that. Well, go tell Jesus about that. He talked about it all the time, didn't he? Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Somehow, our rejection of him is such a great sin that there is eternal punishment for those who reject that. I didn't say that. I'm just a plain cornbread country preacher. He said that. And my offense is so great, and I'm in such need, and in such an emergency for me, that if I don't have him, I'm lost. Let's say, let me show, try to illustrate it to you. 
I'm down at Santee or I'm over at the beach and I'm at your beach house and you have a beautiful beach house and you've got a pier going out into the water for about 100 yards and I'm sitting there one day, I'm in my recliner, I have my sunglasses on, I got my iced tea in my hand and I got a wonderful book and I'm just reading my book and suddenly you come running down the hill and you run out on the on the pier there, and you grab me and try to pick me up, and you're going to carry me up onto the dry land. And I say, what are you doing anyhow? And you say, I'm rescuing you, preacher. Well, I'm going to hit you right in the kisser. I don't need rescue. And I was reading my book, Leave Me Alone. What in the world have you lost your mind? If a person doesn't know they're in peril, they resent you trying to rescue them. Let me say that one more time. If people don't know that they're in great peril, then they resent our attempts to rescue them. But let's say I fall off the pier, and let's say I can't swim. And you come running down the hill and out the pier, and you dive in, and you grab me, and you swim into shore with me, and you save my life. Man, I will be eternally grateful to you. You see, there's a connection between realizing our need and accepting the rescue effort. So when I talk to people about the Lord, I put the emphasis on their need, not on the gospel. Until I can get them lost, I cannot. Get, they're going to resent me trying to get them saved. People in Andrew's army understand you must show the person the peril, the danger that they're in if they die without Jesus Christ. So it requires knowledge. The hearing always comes before believing. Romans 10 says, faith cometh by hearing the word of God. In the book of Acts, chapter 18 and verse 8, it says, many of the Corinthians hearing believed. Many of the Corinthians hearing believed believe. Hearing always comes first. You have to have knowledge of the truth of the gospel and Jesus Christ. And then you acknowledge it. All right, there has to be acceptance of it. In other words, you have to be convinced that it is in fact true. You hear it, you know it. And see, here's the danger of children growing up in a church where they're just immersed in the Christian faith. And there's so many good things about that, but there's also a danger. The danger is that children are brought up in church that they have this knowledge of it, but they don't have a true acceptance, a persuasion, a conviction that this is as important as it is. And then the third thing is there's trust or commitment. So you have these three elements, knowledge, acceptance, trust. You see, without trust, it's possible to have knowledge and accept it and be persuaded that it's true, but you've never committed yourself to it. There's no commitment to it, and therefore, you're still not converted. It's possible to know about Christ and accept it as being true, but never really trust, put the commitment to it. You know of who John Wesley is. Wesley was a very religious man. His father was an Episcopal or an Anglican rector in England. He went to Oxford University and he studied theology, the very pinnacle of intellectual 
thinking in his day. He left there and worked in prisons for a while, and then got on a ship and came to America, to Savannah, Georgia, and lived there and worked among the Indians and the people of Savannah, and then went back home two years later. He was in a storm on the sea, and he watched some Moravian people in the middle of the storm gather together, read the Scripture, and pray. And they were calm and peaceful. And he was in turbulence. If I die, I don't yet know if I'm saved or not. He got back to England, and here's a man who had a theology degree, had been a missionary to the Indians of North America, and had no assurance of salvation. And he went to a little meeting where somebody took a copy of Martin Luther's book on the Romans, and he said, I quote him, the breakthrough came on Wednesday, 24th May, 1738. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society. We would call it a Bible study in Aldersgate Street, London, where someone was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. At a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart of a person through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and had saved me from the law of sin and death. End of quote. John Wesley was saved. Theology graduate, former missionary, still lost. He had knowledge. He had acceptance. He didn't have trust. Turn your Bible. Let me show you that to you all in one verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. You'll see all those three concepts that I've gone over, knowledge, acceptance, and trust are commitment, if you will. You'll see them all in one verse, 2 Timothy 1, 12. Paul says, beginning in the middle of the verse, I won't even read it all, for I know there's knowledge. I know whom I have believed. There's the knowledge part. I am persuaded, that's the acceptance part, that he will be able to keep that which I have committed. There's the trust part. I've committed it unto him. I know knowledge. I know who Jesus is. I know what he did for me. I'm persuaded that it's the truth, and I have committed it to him in good faith that he will save me. I think of these rescue helicopters. We've seen a lot of them recently, haven't we? And here's a man on a rooftop, and the floodwaters are all around him down in Houston or in Florida or Puerto Rico or wherever. He's on the rooftop. He has nowhere to go. It's a sea of water as far as you can see in every direction. Everything is destroyed in the flood. And a helicopter comes, one of those search and rescue helicopters. And he looks up, and there's this big machine. The motor is so powerful, he feels it in his chest. The rotor is turning and even lapping the surface of the waters. And a hoist drops down 
a rescue cage, a bed, if you will. And a man comes down with him, and the man says, listen, we're going to save you. Get in that cage and buckle on this seatbelt so you won't fall out, and then we're going to hoist you up into the helicopter, and you're going to be saved. Knowledge, acceptance, conviction. I see that helicopter is so powerful, it could lift me in the house. I believe that I can strap myself into that bed and that if he will take me up, I'll be safe. There's no other way out. I look every which way. It's just water everywhere as far as I can see. And then he straps me in and they hoist me up. I commit myself. I step onto that rescue cage. Until I can know about the helicopter's power to save me, I can accept that it will, in fact, rescue me, but until I get in, I'm lost. And until you make that commitment and that decision for Jesus Christ, and you put all your confidence and trust in the gospel, I tell you, you're lost. And our job as Christians, Andrew's Army, is to go to everybody that we know and to share with them that simple 10-word message whose implications can change them. Yesterday, I was, I listened to all this news. I tell you, I'm about to swear off of Fox News. It's depressing. Everything is, sky's falling, isn't it, every day. And I was in my car, and I'd been listening to the news and had a couple phone calls that were not exactly encouraging. And I just uh, sort of had the mully grubs. And I said, wait a minute, why am I doing this? God's still in control. I don't care what the news says. And I have a job. I have a purpose. I have a mission. And until the Lord takes me home, I need to focus on that and forget all this other stuff. We've got to remind ourselves the power of the gospel, Romans 1.16. Let me tell you a great story. Lean forward. I want you to get this. You remember who Charles Darwin is, the inventor or the discoverer, what, how do I say it, of evolution? Charles Darwin looked for the most primitive tribe he could find on the planet. And he heard about this tribe of Indians who lived in Tierra del, del Fuego. Tierra del Fuego, that means the land of fires, is on an area down at the tip of South America where Chile and Argentina come together and juts out into the ocean. And it's the southernmost point in the civilized world. It's the last place you go, and then 2,200 miles of ocean will take you to Antarctica. Darwin went there to visit this uncivilized group of Indian people. And he met the natives, and he wrote in his journal, and this is a copy of his journal. He says, they are miserably degraded savages. I could not have believed how wide the difference between savage and civilized man. It's greater than it is between wild and domesticated animals. 
inasmuch as in man there's a greater power of improvement. The most abject, miserable creatures I anywhere have beheld existing in a lower state of improvement than in any other part of the world. These poor wretches were stunted in their growth. Their hideous faces bedaubed with white paint. Their skin was filthy and greasy. Their hair was entangled. Their voices were discordant, and their gestures were violent. Boy, he was impressed, was he not? Twelve years later, in 1844, a man named Alan Gardner heard about these poor people, and he formed the Patagonian Missionary Society in England. He made two attempts to go visit them in 1845 and again in 1848. Both times he left frustrated because they were so hostile, he was afraid for his life, and he fled Tierra del Fuego. He went back a third time in 1850 with six companions, six missionaries, and a year later, all seven of them died from starvation in the awful cold when a relief ship that was to bring them supplies was two months late. They found all their bodies frozen there in that cold climate. In 1862, a fresh missionary party led by a man named Waite Sterling went. Sterling's doctor had told him that he probably had about three years to live, and he said, well, then I will go and live those three years where they can be most used of God. God spared him. For the next 38 years, Sterling lived in Tierra del Fuego, traveling through the region of southern South America by horseback, bringing the gospel to all the Fuegan tribes. In 1867, 35 years after Charles Darwin described those people, over 400 Indians in one tribe even had believed, had been baptized, were educated, were clothed, were following the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel. It's sad we don't We're not impacted by it now. We've heard it so much. Even Charles Darwin was impressed. News of the changing lifestyle of the Fuegans reached Darwin in 1867. He was so impressed, he immediately sent a check to the Missionary Society and then continued to contribute to them for the next 15 years until his death in 1882. Even Darwin acknowledged the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, the problems of America are so overwhelming right now. Everybody understands that. They're so daunting. We say, is there any hope? People thought that Donald Trump can save them. They're seeing Donald Trump can't work miracles. No man can save us. No party is going to save us, conservative or liberal. The government cannot solve the problems. They are the problem in many cases, as Reagan said. No economic or educational solution is out there for people. 
Social justice is a pipe dream. It's not the message of the church. You see, the problem is the heart of man. And if you want to change society, you change society one man, one woman at a time. And when we throw in the towel on trying to reach people for Christ, we've basically given up on life, haven't we? Trying to change society, someone said, is like rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. It's not going to make much difference. I want you to see you have a purpose. The world tells you to climb the ladder of success. Stephen Covey was a wise man when he said, you know what? It's a sad thing to climb the ladder of success and find at the end of life that the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. So now you climb the ladder. And where are you? The purpose for which God made me is to become his child, to be formed in his image, and then to tell the world ten words. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Don't live your life die, and not take one single soul to heaven with you. God will use you because you're not the power. The power is the gospel. A man said to me, I can't talk to my family. I said, why? He said, they know me too well. I said, the power to reach your family is not in how you live. It's in the gospel. They need the gospel. Bow your head with me, if you will.